All right, there should be some Bibles around you, or you can swipe open your phone. We're in Matthew 2 today, so we're taking a short break in our series called The Awakening for a Christmas trilogy called The Real Christmas Story. And here's what we're doing today. We're looking at the Magi. Next week, well, not next week, on Thursday, Christmas Eve, we're looking at the story of the star, still in Matthew 2, and then next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, we're looking at the story of Herod versus the child. And this is all in Matthew 2. Now, Matthew 2, Matthew, tells a very different story than the Gospel of Luke. And it's not that they're conflicting stories, but the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has something he wants to accomplish. He wants you to realize that at the coming of Christ, there is a coming of a cosmic battle. And it begins with the coming of Jesus. And that's Matthew's main focus. Luke is focused on something very different, but Matthew wants us to know that there is a cosmic war happening around us. And it all at the center of it, the cause of it, is this small little child who's been born. And then the first thing he starts doing, so as soon as Jesus is born, basically this is what Matthew does. Jesus is born. Now let's talk about the Magi. And so he does that. And what we find in my digging about the Magi, I have found out some amazing things about these guys. And they are not who you think they are. So let me read to you Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. These verses call them, the, the Magi, the wise men. And is that a good title for them? Well, it's not really a good title. And if you've seen Christmas cards or if you've sung any Christmas songs, you would know that often these guys are referred to as kings. And there's three of them. But here's the thing. They're not kings, and we don't know how many there were. But it likely was not three. And basically, there's a very different story than the one that you have been told about Christmas and how it went down. And what Matthew wants to see is that there is a battle happening here. 
So who are these guys? They are ancient priests from Persia. They're called the Magi. And when the Bible calls them wise men, here's what the translators are trying to do. They're trying to describe these Magi in a way that we might understand. But the problem with, this time, with, with them doing it here is that it just doesn't, it doesn't set our imagination upon the name of these people. Because if we see their name as the Magi, we say, who in the world are these people? And it sets us off on a journey to figure it out. And what we find is that on this journey to find out who they are is we find something very magical. In the sense, meaning it's awe-inspiring. And they are sometimes referred to as magicians. They're even called magicians in the Old Testament, these magi. They are very, very important men. And they have a specific job in Persia where they are. And their job is to appoint kings, to prepare kings, to teach kings. And there is no king in Persia who is allowed to be king unless these men give the okay. And any king must be trained in the way of the Magi. They have to be, or else they can't be the king. So what did they teach? Well, they taught everything. They were philosophers. They were like ancient doctors. They, were, they studied the stars. They were astrologers. They interpreted dreams. And they were spiritual advisors. And they did it all. That's why they're called wise men. They're also called magicians, but that means a very different thing back then. Basically, it means that they were wise over all things. And they had a religion. And it morphed over time, and the religion of the Magi is traced back to something called Zoroastrianism. And it was started by a guy named Zarathustra, probably around 1500 B.C., and it's one of the oldest religions that's actually still practiced today. There's probably between 110 and 120,000 people throughout the world who practice this religion. And even the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And in it, he attempts to, to basically dismantle the idea of God, but these guys, the Magi, would have no place for that. They took the idea of God very seriously, and we see it in the story. And listen to this. Listen to what this religion spoke of. A coming Messiah, a judgment day, heaven and hell, a hero who would come and rescue the world, and life after death. And when you look up this religion, a lot of scholars will say, actually, other religions are borrowing from this religion. They would say that Judaism is borrowing from this religion. They would say Christianity is borrowing from this religion. And they name a whole bunch of religions that borrow from it. But is that true? Did this religion actually borrow from Judaism? Or is Christianity actually borrowing from this religion? And the answer is no. Actually, it's quite the opposite. And here's the amazing part about this story. Around 650 B.C., between 650 and 600 this religion became very popular and, and rose to power. But something very interesting happened to that time. There was a change in leadership. There was a foreign thinker, somebody who would have been outside of this group of the Magi that would have come in. They got a new leader. And he was appointed by the Babylonian king at the time to be leader over the Magi. Do you know what his name was? You don't know what his name is. But I'm going to tell you 
His name is Daniel from the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophet Daniel. The one who found himself in Babylon. How? Because the Babylonian king had destroyed the nation of the whole entire nation of Israel. Babylon, Babylon took over, and many of these people, including Daniel, were sent to Babylon. And so Daniel gets there, and he's, God is with him, and he's a very wise man. And there comes a situation as he's rising to power, this Daniel, where he is ordered that he needs to worship the king, and he won't do it. And so they, they, they take him, and they're going to have him killed. But through a series of events, God on his side, he lives through it all, and he rises up to power. And the king, we see this in Daniel 5.11, appoints him chief over the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. This is exactly who the Magi are. And so what happened here is that Daniel is appointed their leader through a series of unfortunate events that God would use to bring about some amazing things. And think about this. So all of these guys, these Magi, because Daniel is the leader, would have had all of Daniel's teaching all of his prophecies about the coming Christ, and would have had all of the Old Testament scriptures about the coming Messiah. They would have been learning all about this one who is to come. They would have been searching him out. And the irony also is Daniel almost is killed for refusing to bow to worship a false king. And we find his followers 600 years later bowing to what would have been called a false king at the time, but what they have found is the true king of kings and the true lord of lords that they have been searching for since Daniel told them about it 600 years ago. So, this religion did not influence Christianity or Judaism, but it was Daniel, a faithful man of God, who continued to teach about his God, refusing to bow down to worship any king but one and one alone, the God, the God king, the king of kings. And so they show up from Persia because, well, there's a transition of power, and so they're Persian now. And so they move in to do something they're not supposed to be doing. They enter into a land that they have no right being in, but they come in anyways, and you know what they do? They march right up to the king of the Jews, Herod, who was appointed by the Romans, and said, we're looking for the true king. And, well, Herod was not happy about this. But they're looking for the one who is to come. And so you got to imagine this. So these guys are not who we think they, they were. Like, they are powerful, powerful people. They appoint the kings. And they would have been traveling not alone. They're coming 800 miles. It would have taken them 40 days to get there. And they would have, that means it takes a long time. They would have come with cooks. They would have come with soldiers, and they would not have come on camels, but war horses. There's likely a thousand people following them. So it's not these three guys that we keep thinking that it is. And the arrival would have caused a huge scene. And so what do they do? Well, they mar march right up to the one who has the throne, and they said, hey, we're looking for the true, true king of the Jews, this one who is to come. And man, it messes with Herod big time. And they say... He was born, and we're looking for him. And so here's what the Magi are doing. They are ready to uproot any king that stands in the place of the true king. They have found the one who commands the stars. They have found the one that commands the sun and the moon. And they have found the one that all heaven and earth and anything under the earth will one day bow to. That's the one that they're looking for. 
And it creates quite a statement because their main job is to appoint kings. And they are coming here saying, we are looking for the one, the king of all kings. So that brings us to the question, the main point of all this. How should we respond to this story? That's our second point. In this story, we, three, we see three different responses. We see the response of Herod, who was who threatened. We see the response of the religious leaders of the day, who are indifferent. And then we see the response of the Magi, which is to worship God. So Herod first. He sees Jesus as a threat. He sees him as so much of a threat that we read in a few verses, he actually has, Herod has all baby boys two years under, two years of age or under killed in over all the land because he is that threatened by this little child, Jesus. And Herod's right. Jesus is a threat to everyone who will not acknowledge him as king. That's what kings do. They come and they take power. They take the power that is due to them. They make the rules. They are the ones that are in charge. We say, I'm in charge, and the king says, nope, I am. But he's good because we're told he's a shepherd king, which means he's caring. He is the king of all kings, holds all the power in all the cosmos, yet he's a shepherd who cares, which means he loves you more than anybody you know loves you, which means he's going to care for you very well and he's, you can trust him. But most people who will not come to Christ won't come for a variety of reasons. Science disproves the resurrection, some might say. I've suffered in my life, and I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen to me. Or I just don't know about the Bible and if I can trust it. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people will not come to Christ. But ultimately, in the end, it's because he claims kingship. It means we lose control if we crown him as the king. And, well, we don't want to lose control of our life. And that's what happens when you go to one who's in control of all things. Could it be that you haven't said yes to Christianity because... You just really don't want to lose control of your life. Could it be that maybe you're here to get some help in your life, maybe to be a little bit inspired, maybe to learn something about the Bible, but that's about as far as it goes because, well, you don't want a king. And the problem that you have, all of us have, if you don't crown him as king, is that he claims to be king. And everyone around him claims to be king. And so you can't have an indifferent response to him. You either have to go all in or you have to completely reject him. He claims too much. And the irony is that the religious leaders of this day, the ones who are supposed to know the Bible really well, the ones who Herod and the, the Magi are going to to get explanation about where he's to be born, they're the ones who are indifferent to him. Herod is not. Herod is threatened and terrified by him. The Magi are ready to worship him, but the religious leaders of the day remain completely indifferent. They tell him where he is, but they do nothing about it. Now, what's up with these guys? Well, they're doing what we do all the time. We remain indifferent 
all the time. There's two ways. There's the indifferent skeptic and the indifferent Christian. So the indifferent, indifferent skeptic has maybe heard of Jesus by, by friends or family or, or whoever and just says, eh, it's a good story. And it stays at that. And maybe they say, sure, I'll go to church. Maybe this is a good morality lesson for my kids. But don't make me give up some Sundays where I might want to go do something else. But that is not how you respond to this kind of king. And then there's the indifferent Christian. The person whose desire to be with God has lessened of late. The words are not jumping off of the pages of Scripture anymore. They just kind of feel dull and meaningless. What happened? Well, if that's you, perhaps there's a sin in your life that you don't want to stop doing. And there's a king who's telling you to stop. And so instead of looking at him, you just kind of turn the other way. And you find yourself over time getting further and further away from him because you know he wants to command your life and you don't want him to. And so you keep turning away a little bit more and a little bit more until you find nothing is meaningful anymore about this Christ. What's happened? You've kept turning away. Or perhaps you never really went to him. But here's how you should think of it. If you're feeling indifferent at all to Christ, if you are not going all in completely with your life, if you are not saying this is the one I love most above all in your life, perhaps this is what has happened to you. Perhaps you are the sheep in the middle of the sheepfold. And all the other sheep are telling you how amazing this king is, this shepherd king. But you kind of don't really get it. And here's the problem. You haven't run from him in the way that the other sheep who've run from him and have experienced being caught and captured by him and brought back to the sheepfold and felt the experience of his embrace. You haven't done that. What you've done is run a different way. You've run inside of the sheepfold. You've stayed clear from him by just listening about him from the other sheep, but kind of staying right there in the middle where no sh- you don't have to have an encounter with him. People do this all the time. You've never really gone to the shepherd king. You've just kept at a distance. Maybe right now it's time for you to stop listening to me and all the words that I tell you about the shepherd king and go to him finally for the first time for yourself or return to him for the first time in a long time. Because it's quite one thing to hear facts about what it's like to embrace the shepherd king, but it's quite another thing to embrace him yourself. So maybe it's time you did that. And then when you finally do, you respond in worship. So what is worship? Every time I try to define worship, here's what keeps happening to me. I start describing something that becomes so abstract that it completely loses all meaning. So the best that I can do when I describe worship to you is this. Whatever you have around you, whatever it is about you, just give everything to him. Like yourself, give to him. Take everything. The the Magi, they knew, here's what they knew to do in their life. They knew to appoint kings, and they knew he was far away. So they traveled 800 miles to get to him. And they did the thing that they do best. They crowned him as their king. And they crowned him as king over all of the earth. By the way, you can imagine these thousands of people showing up 
with the Magi surrounding Mary's home, entering into their house and bowing down. I mean, they're on their faces before this little child. This has to be a very overwhelming experience. But the question for you is how can you honor Christ in your life? You take whatever you have. It doesn't have to be gold, frankincense, or myrrh. It's just take anything that you have. Your house, your family, your life, your job, your bank account, anything that you have and you just push it all in like all of your poker chips and you say, it's yours. Now tell me what to do with it. You're my king. Here. How do I live? Tell me what to do with all of this stuff that you've given me. And you begin to live for him. You take your grip off of your own life and you just say, I am yours. But in order to worship him, you have to first take the risk of going all in. So what I want to do right now is show you what it feels like right before you start worshiping him. I want to give you a picture. I want to give you a picture of what it's like to become to go from being indifferent to him to seeing him as a threat. And if you've never saw him as a threat, then there's a problem in your life because he is very threatening. But to worship him means in the midst of feeling the threat of him, you go to him anyway. C.S. Lewis describes this perfectly in the book, The Silver Chair. So there is this little young girl who's found herself in the woods alone. And she's very thirsty, and she's looking for water. And she finds a stream, but it causes her to stop dead in her tracks because of what she sees on the other side of the stream. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes in the story. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone and her mouth wide open. And she had very good reason. Just on the side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it will be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, it will run, I will run straight into his mouth. Anyway, she could not have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. Are you thirsty? You may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy and golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything if, if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go for a look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. 
It was the worst thing that she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. This is what it feels like to come to him. You have no control and you have no idea what he's going to do to you. But you go to him anyways, because why? Because you have an unquenched thirst that is driving you mad. The reality is, you have to be forced to him by this unquenched thirst. And you have to understand that God has put this desire, this thirst in you, and ultimately that thirst is meant to lead you straight to him. So, maybe your life situation is pressing in on you, and it's become unbearable, and you have no choice but to go to him. You're being forced to it. Maybe life has become so unbearable that you realize you need a strength that can only come from that lion that's on the other side of that stream, but you have no idea what he's going to do to you. You have no idea what he will require of you, but you know that you can't get through another day unless you get strength that comes from somewhere outside of you. Or maybe your sin has become so unbearable in the weight of it that you're just looking for some relief. And you see the cold waters, the cool waters of forgiveness. But the one who you must pass through is the lion if you want that forgiveness. So you have to, to have that thirst quenched, go to him. Or maybe your heart has been broken and you feel abandoned. And you're just longing to feel what it feels like to know that you'll never be believed or forsaken. And that's exactly what he promises, but you have to go to him. He's guarding the stream of life. And how do you know, though, that you can trust him? Because he is dangerous. He's a king. He's the king of kings. And how do you know he's not going to eat you alive? Well, it's always going to feel risky no matter what by going to him. But here's what you can do. You can look at the risk that he took for you. You can see that he came into our world vulnerable like a child and put himself into the hands of rebellious, envious, controlling people like us. Like a baby child put in the hands of earthly kings who would stand for no other king getting it to take their throne, yet he came anyways for you. And he grew up before us like a little young plant, vulnerable, yet he did it anyways for you. And he placed himself in the end in the hands of earthly kings who would destroy him. But he did it anyways for you. Because there on the cross, he was abandoned in order to gather up all those who have been abandoned before him. And to bring them back home. And on the cross, he has his heart broken so that he could come to all of us who have had our hearts broken. And heal us. 
And he came on the cross bearing all of our sin and all of our shame so that we could then place upon him all of our sin and shame. And the power then of sin and shame would be put to death by the one who's come, this child king. But in order to have him and all that comes with him, you have to go all in with him. You can't go 90% in. You can't go 99% in. You have to go 100% in. Let that be the challenge for you right now. He requires everything, but he gives you everything in return. Let's pray. God, we pray that we would see the intensity of the claim that comes with Christmas that we would see that there is a war raging around us for the battle of our souls. That there is an assault against every throne in this world at the coming of Christ. So God, we want help in giving ourselves fully to you. And in the parts where we're holding back, I pray God that you would show us all the reasons why we can trust you, our shepherd king. Help us do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.